0: comes it's nashville untold with andrew buckwalter the podcast that interviews the most interesting and influential people
1: making an impact on nashville's business charitable and entertainment scenes joining us now from his roving camper studio here's andrew
0: welcome to episode 15 of nashville untold and thank you for tuning in today in the rambler i'll be hosting dan miller
1: but i knew our minds are like a garden if i allow a weed to start growing in there it's going to multiply and grow i had to force feed my brain with things that are positive pure off and inspiring so i carried with me a battery operated cassette player and i would pop in those old cassettes of zig Ziglar, jim roan dennis waitley those people listen to those every minute i was in there to force feed my brain those messages and keep the weeds of negativity and pessimism from growing.
0: Dan is the author of the New York Times best-selling 48 Days to the Work You Love, No More Dreaded Mondays, and Wisdom Meets Passion. His 48 Days podcast consistently ranks in the top three under careers on iTunes. I had a great time hanging out with Dan at his place in Franklin, Tennessee. It was a perfect spot to park the Rambler and chat for a bit. Dan loves cars like I do, so it was fun tailoring a few questions around some of the cars he owned at different times in his life. I loved hearing his story, and from a very early age, he had an entrepreneur bug, and it was kind of neat to see just the environment he grew up in, and even his family, all that he's accomplished in spite of uh, you know a farming environment and growing up a Mennonite. After hearing a story, you will realize, regardless of your environment and life situations, you can push through and accomplish all you set your mind to. At the end of the episode, make sure to stay tuned for a song written and sung by Stephen Day. Now a word about the local nonprofit of the month, Tennessee Voices for Children. Make sure to check out the show notes for details about the gala that will be in October. One of the programs they have that I'll kind of speak on is the Early Childhood Program program. Tennessee Voices for Children's Early Childhood Program provides training and technical assistance to parents and child care staff across the state of Tennessee. They offer training on the Pyramid Model, adverse childhood experiences, and positive solutions for families. Why it matters, according to a study by Pyramid Model Equity Project, 6,700 preschool children nationwide were suspended at least once in 2013-14. Young students who are expelled or suspended experience greater academic failure and grade retention, more negative attitudes about school, and are less engaged in academics. Higher rates of dropout, increased rates of incarnation. So that's why one of the aspects of Tennessee Voices for Children, they're here to help out and provide. I guess less than those stats again that was from 2013 to 14 so I'm sure uh, there's some updated numbers that probably have increased that anyway so that's uh that's one of the good things Tennessee voices for children are doing in Tennessee so make sure to check them out and support them hello Nashville today I am sitting down with Dan Miller um, in Franklin at his uh, wonderful resort the sanctuary, <laughs> and so uh, Dan, thank you so much for uh, joining me in the Rambler. Hey,
1: my pleasure! What a treat
0: to be on my property,
1: yeah. but out here in your Rambler. It
0: makes it easy, right?
1: It does.
0: That's kind of one of the selling points. Hey, you want to do a podcast? I can come right up to your driveway. You know. Um, all right. So Dan is an author of the New York Times best selling. 48 Days for the Work You Love, No More Dreaded Mondays, and Wisdom Meets Passion. He has been a guest on CBS, The Early Show, and MSNBC's Hardball with Chris Matthews, and The Dave Ramsey Show. Dan has spoken at the White House Christian Fellowship and is in high demand as an expert on new opportunities in today's changing workplace. His 48 Days podcast consistently ranks in the top three under careers on iTunes. And the 48dayseagles.com community is viewed as an example around the world for those seeking to find or create work they love. Dan has been married to Joanne for over 50 years. They have three grown children and 17 grandchildren and live on nine beautiful acres in Franklin, Tennessee. And I'm getting experience there right now. So that's a little bit about Dan. You got a little bit going on. It sounds like, right? We do. I've had a
1: very full life
0: Yeah. and looking forward to the next 25 years. That's awesome. All right. So I'm going to dive into a speed round. How long have you lived in Nashville? 30 years. 30 years. Where did you move from and why'd you move to Nashville? Oh, ouch.
1: Moved here from Bowling Green, Kentucky. We had lived there for 12 years. And I had a couple of businesses there and had one that I really leveraged. You know, being an entrepreneur, I just leveraged one business on top of the next. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, some banking rules changed and I was put in a pretty untenable position. And I sold one of the businesses I had, a health and fitness center, at public auction, thinking I'd at least get out with a shirt on my back. And it didn't turn out to be that way. I woke up the next morning, about half a million dollars in debt. So we we didn't run out of town, you know, to escape everybody. But in that period of time, while I was working my way out of that mess, I thought, you know, it'd be really nice to just have kind of a fresh start. Mm -hmm. And so we just moved a little bit south. Always loved Nashville. Loved the fact there's major airports, easy to get in and out of, a lot of cultural things for our kids who were growing up at the time. So we came down here. But it really was kind of a fresh start. For yeah, me. and yeah. that's when I really moved into this information space, where instead of having bricks and mortar businesses, I discovered the power of online businesses and how you can leverage information and build businesses without having employees and buildings and inventory. How cool is that?
0: Yeah. So is that did you have a passion for Corvettes because you lived in Bowling Green, or <laughs> did you have it before <laughs> then?
1: I I was 13 years old when the Corvette Stingray came out. And my dream was to someday have a Corvette. And you know, the funny thing is, I had this fear that by the time I'd be able to get a Corvette, I would no longer want it. Isn't it? It was right. a really irrational no, I... kind of fear, but that was my fear. Well, over the years, I've had several okay. Corvettes.
0: Yeah. But... Well, I saw the one you posted on Instagram, and it was the silver Stingray. I forget what it was. Oh yeah. The... Oh man, that was beautiful. Yeah, that, yeah. I would say that is probably one of the sharpest. Well, I've Corvettes. had
1: several, but uh, so I, ha- I have one right now. Yeah. 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 yeah that's but awesome. I, I'm not. I've had lots of other fun cars as mm-hmm. well. I love cars that are fun. Being in Bowling Green was was a cool experience because I yeah. we went through lots of tours there at the Corvette plant.
0: And so when you moved to Nashville, you chose Franklin then, or did you move somewhere else?
1: We moved into Southern Nashville at first, rented a place for a couple of years to kind of get to know the area. Then we moved to a place in Brentwood, and then we found our way down to Franklin. And we've been down here now for 22 years. Okay. So we love this area But it was a matter of just kind of getting acclimated to the area And understanding where it is we really wanted to be
0: Yeah yeah. So
1: we love the Franklin area Franklin's
0: a good choice for sure Yeah it is So favorite musician or genre of music? You too, baby
1: No group like it Absolutely my favorite kind of music and musical group
0: Right, right Good choice All right. so tell me one thing most people do not know about you
1: I was raised in a Mennonite Amish community. My p- grandparents were Amish, so horse and buggy. No electricity, no plumbing. So that's kind of a unique thing when people see our lifestyle now. But uh, What part of Ohio? Were you, were you raised in Ohio? Raised in Ohio.
0: What part? Right in the middle, in Mansfield. It's kind of in between okay.
1: Columbus and Cleveland.
0: So we recently went to Bryan, Ohio? so it was outside of Fort Wayne yeah and when we left some relatives house they were like now be careful because the Amish are out you know at certain time and and they know how I drive (laughs) probably Uh like you right they're like you will flop on one of them Um, and then I also noticed that you graduated from Ohio State I did indeed nice The Ohio the Ohio so back in the Woody Hayes days my father-in-law um, who had passed away three years ago. He graduated with a mas- his master's degree there. And then my mother-in-law, she graduated from there as well. Um, so I used to always talk smack. My wife and I graduated from University of Arkansas. And uh, I would always give him a hard time because... The Ohio State couldn't beat the SEC oh. until Arkansas played, played them and got beat by them. And I was like, oh, man, I can't talk anymore smack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, okay, that's Went cool. there. That was a poor farm kid's escape
1: from the farm. Yeah. Go to Ohio State. That's good started, school, Started it? a branch campus and then moved down to the main campus. Okay, okay. Sure did.
0: So what is one of the most exciting places you have visited?
1: Probably... Probably in London, south of London, actually, I only, only take it a little farther, and I'll go to the Isle of Wight, which is an island on the southern off the southern coast of England. but just a delightful island. And we, we met people there. We decided to stay there for three weeks one time because we just uh, liked it there. So but just okay. quaint towns, great people compassionate people care for each other we were we enjoyed it a
0: lot that's awesome and you're traveling quite a bit now right Often. of
1: we are Yeah. I'm not big on international travel I like the good old US of A yeah but uh, we've yeah. seen a lot of places and yeah, we have kids spread all over the country so right. that kind of forces us to, to spend some time traveling yeah that's cool but thus is the life of an entrepreneur because mm-hmm. you blend work and play where it doesn't interrupt or stop work mm-hmm. you just work from a different position I mean, we were just we just spent three weeks in Florida and during that period of time what I usually do is get up early I'm an early riser Joanna's not and I get up and do what I need to do including podcasts newsletters blogs communicating all of that before 10 o'clock then at 10 o'clock we play for the rest of the day absolutely
0: yeah that's great I remember the first time when I got in real estate we were taking a vacation this it was actually after i had left one of the brokers i was with and i had total freedom as i was telling you and uh i remember going all right i need to check i need to put in requests for vacation so i just looked in the mirror and i said you want to take a vacation <laughs> i said yeah all right let's go <laughs> it was oh man it was uh, such a peaceful feeling i'm like yes i don't because that was what i always hated when i switched jobs it was like oh man I only got a week of vacation or it doesn't kick in until like half a year. You know, it was it clock. was miserable. Oh. All right. So give me a uh, like a two to five minute overview of kind of what you have going on today. Obviously, I hit on your bio, um, but sure. just something to kind of enlighten the, the guest.
1: Well, this moving into what I'm doing today, I'm primarily an author. I mean, there's nothing I love more than writing so writing coaching speaking are the three primary things that I do today and I got into that uh, not I, I hate to say by accident because I'm the one that helps people create a strategic plan for living out your dream but it kind of snuck up on me because I grew up very much an entrepreneur but with more physical ideas bricks and mortar kind of ideas not realizing the power in this arena that we're in today So my wife and I were teaching a Sunday school class, and this was 25 years ago. And the Sunday school class was just on career life transitions. So it was just a service, just a ministry. I mean, I had no intention of that, having anything to do with business. That was always just separate. But the class was like a vacuum. We started having people show up from other churches and other states, and I thought, golly, this is nuts. And so we moved it from a Sunday time period to a Monday evening, did that for eight years. And it just exploded in terms of growth. And I realized when I saw the time that I was spending helping people really navigate these inevitable, relentless transition points, there's really something here. And it was really Joanne who ultimately said, you know, if you're gonna spend 20, 30 hours a week helping people in this arena, it ought to have something to do with your income generation rather than just something you're squeezing in on the side. And when I did that, when I officially kind of made that transition, and said, I am a coach. Back when coaching was just kind of first opening the door, people were even understood what it was. It was like a dam broke. Mm -hmm. And it just has never stopped. So for the last 25 years, I've had the privilege of working with people going through these transitions. My academic background was in clinical psychology. I had both my bachelor's and master's in that. And then my doctoral work was in religion and society. So there was certainly some preparation Mm -hmm. academically. But I never was interested in the traditional application of
0: psychology.
1: I have no interest in being a counselor. You don't want to hear therapist. people whine, right? No, I don't <laughs> want to have people come in crying my shoulder for two years, you know, and hopefully we have some little increment. You're
0: positive. like, you're like, hey, do you see that poll over there? Just go bang your head on that. Like that's pretty much all you're doing, right?
1: Well, as a coach, it gives me the privilege of doing that to be. Very, yeah, yeah, very, very true. Short, intense burst of focused activity to change direction, get new results. I mean, what a thrill to be able right. to do that day after day. Right. So at this point, yeah. Okay. I, my, again, primarily, I write. That's my first love. But then we have our coaching mastery program where we teach people how to build lucrative coaching businesses. And then I have my mastermind. and we have the online 40 Days Eagles community that's growing exponentially. Mm-hmm. So fun things, but just helping people see new possibilities.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that is fun all right so now we'll dive into some some interview questions all right all right so let's go back to the days of milking cows and belling hay i often think that experiences are what opens a person's eyes to what could be being raised on a farm would seem to contradict that what do you think was the difference in you compared to others that might have been raised in a similar environment
1: Boy, that's a great question it's something i've asked myself a thousand times i went to my 40 year high school reunion in that little town where I grew up, and we were on a farm, and most everybody around there was. There were 30 of us in that graduating class. Only two people ever left that town. Wow. One other gal and me. The rest of them stayed right there. They got local jobs in factories or on the farm, put in their work years, and retired. I thought, oh my gosh. But there was something in me that was, I was really restless as a little kid. I just believed there was more out there. And as a 13-year-old farm kid, I somehow got a hold of the little audio recording by Earl Nightingale called The Strangest Secret. He says, we become what we think about. And I thought, is it possible that I could change the destiny that seems to be outlined for me as a poor farm kid to just be a farmer, if I change what I think about? And I started reading biographies and Horatio Alger stories about people's success. And then I would get cassette programs and listen to them. The early Masters of Achievement, Jim Rohn, Norman Vincent Peale, Napoleon Hill, Zig Ziglar, people like that. And it just kept broadening, broadening my belief in new possibilities that I could see more, go more, do more, have more, be more. And I just kept walking through those open doors. And it took me out of that town. My dad was not happy about me leaving the farm. He presented it in the way that I owed it to him. It was not just an opportunity. I owed it to him. So that was a tough kind of transition. Now, fortunately, time is a wonderful healer. Mm -hmm. He loved the kind of things that I became involved in. But I kept pushing the boundaries. And I continue to do so. Because I believe there's so much more Mm -hmm. we can experience.
0: So do you? So you had? Did you have siblings? Yes. And I was one of five. So were they like-minded like you? Like was it was it a matter of, of, you know, like the school you went to, or what you know injected that thought into you? Do you think, or you think you were just born that way?
1: Well, that's a pretty clear pattern as well. I have four siblings. None of them took the path that I did they all remain very, very conservative and small in their thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, my older brother, I love him to death, but he was—he did go to college, taught in a little local school, I never made more than $33,000 a year, and for me to share with him the kind of things that I've been able to experience, I mean, I don't. I mean, we, we spend time together and... You know, enjoy the time together, but he has no conception. Now, he can obviously see a few indicators along the way, but he has no conception. You know, if I were to tell him that, you know, I get a book advance that's 10 times, you know, his salary, you know, he'd have no way to put his head around that. And the things that we do that generate online community uh, and online passive income today, it's just so foreign. All right. But none of my siblings. That at all? We grew up in the same house, and I've looked back at that time and time again. Hmm. What was there that made me so discontented? But I'm thankful for that, obviously. Maybe the guy upstairs, you know, had a part of that. Would you had to be something? (laughs) But I I don't know why it was so different for me than even from my siblings in the same house, Mm -hmm. same mom and dad. You know, wonderful mom and dad, very simple. But I, you know, and I'm humbled today to recognize that, you know, on a good day, I. A good day, I make more than my dad ever made in a year Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of farming and milking cows. Right, right. Uh, Times have changed, opportunities have changed. Yeah. We couldn't have done some of the things that we do today back then, but uh, that's that's another thing that's a really important principle for me is I don't wanna get stagnant in doing what I did 10 years ago and thinking it's gonna work today. I recognize how quickly things are changing and how I have to change To stay on top of new opportunities.
0: Which you, I guess you just always have the growth mindset is just ingrained in you, right? Totally. Yeah.
1: Totally. All right, so... My my wife calls me, she calls me a three-year man, even today. Okay. She knows that uh, if I do something, even if it's successful... I'll start to sabotage it because I'm such an advocate for change.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like when I did this project, I, I look back and I go, God, hey, that was really nice. And I realized, not to that extent of like creating something, but there definitely is a restless and like, all right, what else can I do with this? You know? And uh, I guess you got to kind of keep that focus too because you don't want to just totally push something aside, but how do you incorporate those different elements into? The growth of what you're doing you know well, well,
1: here's another example Andrew I mean, I really discovered my affinity for writing and how much I enjoy it and how easy it is to impact lots of people through writing where you expand your influence dramatically but I also know that 95% of American authors never make more than $40,000 a year writing is not a lucrative occupation mm-hmm. and if I looked at that And we're just looking for the income potential. I'd be crazy to choose writing as something I want to do. But my response to that is to immediately say, how difficult can it be to put myself in the 5%? I simply look at what most authors do and find things to do that they're not doing. And it's worked extremely well for me. So I continue to do what I'm passionate about, even though statistically, that's not a good thing to choose to succeed financially. But if you do it in a different way, the doors of opportunity just start opening left and right. Right, right.
0: Yeah. All right. So you hear a deep rumble as the car pulls up in the sanctuary drive. You look out the window and see a black 1931 Ford five-window coupe parked outside with the driver door open. You jump in it and hit the back roads for hours. What memories would be racing through your mind that had a huge influence on you during your teen years?
1: <laughs> when I turned six, I've always been fascinated with cars and engines. Same here. Were you? Were
0: you? I, that, maybe not engines, but I always loved power, but I wanted to design cars. I wanted to go to college. Oh, to, my. Yeah, I've always loved cars. Wow. Yeah.
1: Well, that was, that was me when I was you know 5 and 6 years old i was taking apart the gasoline lawnmower to see why it worked and you know <laughs> drill the ports out a little bit to get you know more power in
0: so yeah. your so your siblings thought you were kind of odd right yeah
1: yeah <laughs> yeah i was always taking things apart and figuring out how to make them better right i got some i get some pretty sophisticated mechanical things mm-hmm. that i did back then It'd be hard to describe where listeners could probably follow right. but anyway but so when i turned 16 I was thrilled. I could. I went to the driver's license office on my birthday to get my license. They said, well, you can't. I said, well, I've been driving, you know, for years. Sure. Let me take the test. They said, well, you can't do that. You have to pick up the materials and there has to be at least seven days in between. So I came back a week later, took the test, got my license. But My dad was not one to take me down, you know, and buy me a nice car or sign the papers for a loan. We didn't do that in our family. He thought that an old crappy black car was perfectly fine as a family car and all we needed. I purchased with my own money for $275, a 1931 Ford Model A, Ford five window coupe that you described, didn't run backed it into a chicken coop on our farm and started working on that. So when I had five bucks, I'd go to the junkyard, buy a generator. You know, another ten bucks, you know, I'd buy headlights. I started putting it together, and I worked on it for over a year and a half before I ever drove it out.
0: Now were you YouTube and how to do this? (laughs) (laughs) There was no
1: such social network, but I would pick the brains of those in town who did understand it. I've always been one to find people who are already performing at a level which I want to perform as one of the keys to success. So I found guys that understood that and learned from them. But I built that car from the ground up. I mean, I had a a Packard Packard transmission behind a a 331 Chrysler Hemi engine and then went into an Oldsmobile rear end. So I had to weld together a drive shaft from a Packard and an Oldsmobile, weld it together. But it was because... I Then the Packer transmission was synchronized in the first gear. The Oldsmobile rear end, I welded solid so I had constant posit traction. Mm-hmm. And then I had slicks, 10-inch slicks on the back of that. So a year and a half after starting that, I drove it out of the chicken coop for the first time and had, it had seven coats of bronze lacquer on it. It was an eye-popping street rod. But I did that because as a farm kid, I didn't have any way to get an expensive car. Now, here's an interesting thing that I told you that I was, uh, that I uh, had a friend who had a split window 63 Corvette. Okay. Which was, he bought brand new. When I turned 16, he got a brand new Corvette that his dad just got for him. Dad was a very um, successful contractor builder. So he had that. He was so enamored with my street rod, we would swap cars on alternate weekends.
0: That's cool. So
1: I'd have my street rod, and then I'd have a brand new split window Corvette wow. on alternate weekends to take out my dates and things. Is that cool or that not?
0: is. I mean it kind of makes you think of like following a dream and then you never even know what what door that will open, which yeah. got you to experience a Corvette and then you've had Corvettes ever since, probably, Absolutely. right? Absolutely.
1: I've had a bunch of
0: them. Yeah. That's but, cool.
1: But and it's it, a way it's a way to to make your dream come to life, even if it seems like there's obstacles that are overwhelming.
0: So in those teens again, going back to just like just that drive to build a car. Um, was it just normal days throughout? Like you did school, but then you milked the cows, and then you built built a car. I oh guess. yeah,
1: it was it was squeezing time, discretionary time out to work in the car. It was. Not, I I don't remember my dad ever walking into that chicken coop. He was a good dad, but he wasn't interested in mm-hmm. mechanical things, and he thought it was just frivolous for me to be spending my hard-earned.
0: Little money. What do you think when you finished the car? Was he impressed?
1: I I don't remember him being impressed. Again, now that you have to remember, (laughs) he was a Mennonite.
0: Right, right, right.
1: We only had black cars. And here his son comes out with this souped up chromed engine hot rod.
0: What was the color of the car? It was bronze. Okay, bronze. It was a deep
1: bronze, but the engine had chrome everywhere. And it was. Cars, in his mind, were just strictly Mm -hmm. utilitarian. You justify them because it's a utilitarian means of transportation. Now his kid drives out in something that's obviously self-centered, something that that might lead to pride. Mm -hmm. That's a dangerous Mm -hmm. thing. So I don't think he was real happy about it, no.
0: Hmm. It's really interesting just thinking as you're saying this, I'm just like, again, you kind of define the odds of your family and your environment. You know, And so I think it just kind of is like, I guess that's a a word to speak to giving the freedom to your kids because maybe somebody's just, you know, you want to put them in this box, yet maybe God designed them for this over here and to give them that freedom, you know, to explore. And uh, yeah, it's interesting.
1: There's a verse. And and of course, what an opportunity, as you well know, of being a daddy. Mm -hmm. My goodness, there's nothing more exciting. Both the opportunity and responsibility, Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. But there's a verse that we reference often, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's older, not depart from it. And we take that to give us liberty to put our kids in a box Mm. and demand that they do this. Well, a more accurate rendering of that verse in the Hebrew is train up a child in the way that he or she is bent. Mm. So the opportunity as parents is to figure out how is this child bent? They may be, I mean, what if the son of a heart surgeon is gifted as a wood sculptor, or God forbid, a musician? I mean, we have this generational expectation that every child is gonna supersede mom and dad in terms of education and income. Yeah, these days, a lot of kids that are kids of baby boomers are saying, we don't care about the mortgage and the big car, you know, and the Mercedes in the driveway. I wanna do something noble, something that changes the world. So they choose paths that are very individualized. And, you know, so the question is, can we as parents embrace that and allow them to do that? I've had a lot of fun raising our amazing kids and now our grandkids, oh my yeah, gosh,
0: that's, what a hoot. Um, well, it, it, it's interesting you say that too about being bent because I was bent to be left-handed, yet even in, in me growing up, there was parents correcting their kids because that was yes. against the norm. And yes. thankfully my dad's like, no, he's, he's left-handed, and my sister was left-handed as well. And I was really hoping one of my boys would be left-handed, but I think they're <laughs> all right-handed. But it's just crazy to think just even that. It's like, oh, no, no, keep them in that right-handed box, yet it's like, man, yeah. they were designed, you know, created to be left-handed. So that's crazy. All right, so um, you're about to take another ride down memory lane. This time an Uber driver picks you up in a 1978 Mercury Zephyr station wagon. You jump in the back seat and pull out an old cassette player. You slide in a tape labeled Dan's 1989 Setback and Comeback. What and who played a significant role in the period of in that period of your life? What wisdom did you gain from that experience?
1: Dang, you've done your homework. Wow. When I described that experience in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I sold a business at public auction and ended up almost half a million dollars in debt. That was a tough period of time. Now, there were a couple of things that played out in that. I was advised to just file bankruptcy, certainly a legal option. But that went against who Dan Miller is. I mean, I was raised Mennonite, and there's some things about that that I really value. Your word is bond. I mean, if your word isn't any good, there's nothing left. So I didn't take that path. Now, being the eternal optimist that I am, I thought, eh, a couple of years, I'll knock this out and go on my way. It didn't turn out that way. Oh, and the IRS money, for one thing, is uh, pretty challenging because what you owe them initially grows exponentially mm-hmm. with penalties and interest. So that was a nightmare. I used to have an IRS agent that would st- sh- he would be standing in my driveway at 5:30 in the morning, just as the sun was coming up. Just a means of intimidation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think they could even get by with that anymore today. But it was in that period of time, I mean, they took everything that we had, the IRS, and then I had all kinds of other vendors as well. But I borrowed a car from a friend that you already described. It was a 1978 Mercury Zephyr wagon. I mean, it was an old crappy car. Used a quart of oil every 100 miles or so. The windows didn't work. The air conditioning didn't work. The radio didn't work. But... What I had with me as I started commission only, I've never taken a real job in that period of time. It would have been uh, expedient in some ways, certainly to just take a job. But the math didn't work. I mean, even if I took a job as a university professor, which I could have done, you know, making sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year. I mean, how do you make the math on that work when I owe a half a million and have three kids growing up? It didn't work. So I just jumped right back in again in entrepreneurial kind of things. But one of those was just straight commission sales. And I would drive that old car. But I knew our minds are like a garden. If I allow a weed to start growing in there, it's going to multiply and grow. I had to force feed my brain with things that are positive, pure, uplifting, and inspiring. So I carried with me a battery-operated cassette player. And I would pop in those old cassettes of... Zig or Jim Rohn, Dennis Whateley, those people, listened to those every minute I was in there to force-feed my brain those messages and keep the weeds of negativity and pessimism from growing. Boy, that's a painful, poignant memory. Now, also, I, don't, I you know, sometimes I hesitate to kind of tell the rest of the story there because uh, those two years I thought I'd just not... It didn't happen that way. It was very, very complicated.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I never for a nanosecond second-guessed the decisions I made at that point. The decision not to get a real job but to just jump back into things again that have no guarantee but also no ceiling. And also the fact that I didn't file bankruptcy but I just chose to honor my word and I paid I mean twenty dollars here and thirty dollars there to take care of those debts. But it took me not two years but twelve. Now in that period of time you think that's a really formative time for my kids growing up you know, I, I squashed their ability to really have. No. It's funny. You ask my kids. But they don't remember us having a hard time because the attitude, the happiness, the joy, the experiences in our home never changed. Yeah, we weren't going to Sanibel Island for vacations. You know, we may swing through Taco Bell and then go to the local park. But we did things together as a family, had a lot of laughter and joy in our home even during that period of time. So they don't even remember that as being a tough Mm -hmm. time. They didn't know that the bank account was totally upside down and Dad was struggling to make things work. Now, Mama knew, and she stuck with me. And, of course, that's another really significant part of your question. Without her unconditional support, uh, that would have been a different time. You know, if she would have been angry and upset and demanding that I stop these stupid entrepreneurial kind of things that I'm doing, you know, chasing ideas, that I get a job. I probably would have done that. But she did not do that. It allowed me the freedom to continue to explore, experiment, try things. Has everything worked beautifully since then? Nah. But there have been some things that have worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. And what a thrill it's been. To, um, and I, there was a morning in 2000, it was September of 2000, where I walked into my office and had 14 pages of IRS lien releases come through the fax machine <laughs> 14 pages irs lien releases boy that was a happy day and we Bet. purchased the house that we have that we live in today that month mm. there was that immediate turnaround right where we purchased the house that we have and um continue to develop it of course over the years bought some other property that had joined and yeah have had a great time that's but, pretty you know, cool it's, it's one of those things i mean it's a it's a period in life. I mean it's like the butterfly, you know, coming out of the cocoon. If it was easy, he wouldn't be a butterfly. Right. And those struggles, although I don't wish those on myself or anyone else, they're just part of the journey. And it's an ongoing journey to make us who we are today.
0: Right. Just get up, dust off the boots, and keep on moving, right? Absolutely. Or pay off thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. So you have a few of your favorite sports cars to give to people that have made a huge impact in your life. Who would be a recipient of such an awesome gift and why?
1: Joanne is a sister who just has a heart of gold. But she's had a pretty tough life. Um, She would certainly be the recipient. There are two gals that have come out of the Tennessee Prison for Women that Joanne has mentored for years. Joanne's a really good picker of people who have good potential. Mm. My mission statement is to help high-potential people tap into their highest talents, strongest passions, and translate that into work that is meaningful and fulfilling and profitable so they can thrive financially and leave a legacy she's good at picking people who have high potential even if they don't have two nickels drove together high potential but we've got a couple ladies that we've helped out or we have in fact given them cars and other things over the years but certainly deserving of that
0: so when you were going through you know i guess your transition into the business stuff did you did they have the coaching aspect then or were you really just a force within yourself to just keep moving forward
1: I've always looked for mentors I've always looked for people who were at a level of success that I wanted to attain I've never been bashful about asking those people and, you know sometimes uh, people assume that those who are successful are really uh, close chested you know they they hold their cards close to their chest you know and they don't have time for it. I find that to be the opposite People who have nothing are the ones who are trying to hang on to what they have and tight with their time and resources. People who have been blessed with a lot of resources, I find to be very, very open-handed. And I've learned so much from people who are, have been ahead of me in the game of success. So I've always reached out to people like that mm-hmm. and ask and have been given a wealth of information by people who were. It wasn't strictly... It wasn't really coaching, yeah. I mean, I've right. been, i came into coaching when it was just kind of developing as a concept outside of the sports arena, where we, you know, so people say, "Gee, you're a coach." Well, gee, do you coach soccer, or baseball, or football? You no, know, I coach people mm-hmm. and life transitions. So it's been delightful to watch that whole profession really blossom and grow. Yeah. And at this point, my coaching. Is almost exclusively done with people who want to become coaches because people came to me saying, "How can I do what you've done with this arena of coaching?" Gotcha. So rather than working with the individuals, I work primarily with coaches.
0: Okay. All right. So in this uh, this next minute, I'm going to give a shout out a shout out to one of your favorite restaurants and a favorite nonprofit and why.
1: Absolutely one of my fairly new favorite restaurants is Tito's down in the Berry Farms area just south of us here south of Franklin and I'll tell you the reason there's another Mexican restaurant now that happens to be one of my favorite foods there's another one that I've been going to for years and it's 8 minutes from my house so I have a lot of lunch appointments and I knew it was 8 minutes from my house however with the growth and development in Franklin that has changed and all of a sudden instead of 8 minutes it's 25, 30 minutes sitting through traffic lights where I watch it change a couple times and don't move. So I've elected to go down the back way where there's no lights to one exit down. I can get there in eight minutes. And so, thus, my new favorite restaurant. Nice. Wow. Tito's. Tito's. Tito's restaurant. Absolutely. How about nonprofit? Nonprofit, Narrowgate. Narrowgate is an organization. Um, they have, I uh, was on the board for years, but it, it's an organization that brings in young men between 18 and 25 who have made some poor decisions that have left them in crisis. Bring them in, and it's a real, I mean, it's a ball-busting six-month program. The first six weeks, they live out on the land. No, mm. no, no heat, air, water. Six weeks just to break them of all old habits. But it's a matter of then walking them through a process of rebuilding a life that is really strong in character, integrity, godliness. Uh, We have things on the property that teach them woodworking, uh, metalworking, things like that, where they're using their hands to create things. And I'm a big believer in what that program does. The testimony is out there. Young men who have come out of that and gone on to uh, become CEOs, leaders in every industry. It's a phenomenal program. And is it local? Narrowgate, okay. yes, yes. That's awesome. I The property that. is about uh, an hour and 20 minutes southwest of here. Okay. But their offices are here in Franklin.
0: Okay. So when you have a problem and you put yourself out there, obviously you will get positive and negative feedback. How do you not take it so personal and possibly learn from it?
1: I've discovered that any time you raise your head up out of the rabbit hole, somebody's going to want to whack you on the head. <laughs> Remember that yeah. old fair game, um, whack-a-mole?
0: Oh, it's still at a little, uh, Chuck and Cheese. There, there you go. That, yeah, or whack-a-duck or something. But yes. I love
1: that. Whack-a-mole. Yeah. He pops his head up, you whack him on the head. And as soon as you have any level of success, there are going to be people that do that. I have to realize the name of the game is not trying to please everybody. In fact, if you are pleasing everybody, you probably aren't saying or doing anything that's really important. Robert Kiyosaki, who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I heard him say something years ago that really kind of resonated with me. He says if you're saying something important that really is going to change the world, you're probably going to have a third of the people who love you, a third who hate you, and a third who just don't care. I'm pretty comfortable with that formula. So when I have people criticize, I get criticism. Golly, you know, you this is ridiculous. I had a guy just this last week who said you know you've been deceived just like Adam and Eve in the garden you've been deceived into thinking there's something better than being on that dairy farm you should have been content there now, I don't know where that came from but I mean you gotta be kidding me
0: well maybe it's a stand-up comedian and you just start laughing uh, like crazy well, right I, I did
1: <laughs> I did then and I love that because it gives me such great yeah. fodder to write moving forward right but there there are people who criticize my theology in thinking that we can have what we want and we can go after big dreams and that that's not a biblical or godly principle. I'm very comfortable with that. I don't expect everybody to believe as I do, but uh, therein lies the freedom mm-hmm. to be individualized. I mean, again, back to the responsibilities we have as daddies to help our kids find their individual path. It may not be exactly as we have chosen or as we would do. I, one of my books is Wisdom Eats Passion, and I wrote that together with my son, who lives a very different life, meaning he wanted to go to Africa, and he's one of those who could care less about having a mortgage and a white picket fence. You know, he wants to be a world changer, and made some decisions along the way that I would not consider real wise, and yet at the very core, we're identical in Mm -hmm. our values, in our beliefs. I love that, that he can make different choices he could care less about having a Corvette here I am his dad you know I want the fast you know fancy car he could care less about that he could ride a bicycle and he's perfectly fine with that so I just I like that we can Mm -hmm. find our individual path that success is not a cookie cutter process it's a very individualized process but therein again lies the responsibility to find out what does that mean for us Mm -hmm. and then walk that out what does that look like
0: so was it a challenge Obviously, being raised and you were different than your siblings and your parents, then raising three kids and having to give them that independence and freedom. Was it a challenge throughout that to where you had to kind of step back and be like, all right, got to got to let them breathe? Or did you naturally have a, you know, a bent to let them, you know. Try things.
1: I think I had more than an average bent to let them try that because of my own mm-hmm. upbringing. I was raised in such a strict, conservative, legalistic environment where I, there was a whole lot of clear do's and don'ts. We don't dance, we don't go to movies, we don't do a whole lot of things, we only drive black cars. It was real clear. And to step outside of that was a st- real immense struggle right so becoming a dad myself i said i don't want to do that i don't want create want to create these narrow boxes that build resentment in my kids so we gave them an enormous amount of freedom and helped them we had fun with them finding their own individuality so that was that was a fun process i yeah. i have loved every stage of being a daddy, you know, you hear parents talk about you know the terrible twos. Right, years, I hate right? that. I hate oh, it. I really do. I've always nuts? said,
0: I've always said. Are, do you think about what you're saying? Because like, you know, sometimes it's terrible twos, threes, four, five. I think it's a parent problem. Yeah. But but I really I've never said that. I've never wanted to refer to my kids as terribles because I love every season. You know. We, we, now, granted, some of them are frustrated, but still, it's like it's part of it. You know. Oh,
1: we enjoyed every age of our kids and continue to do so which mm-hmm. i really find um uh, just being a rewarding experience
0: so the book you wrote with your son did was that kind of in that uh, what was it grace wisdom
1: meets passion
0: yeah was that kind of tailored in there or as far as like how to go through life as a parent and give them that freedom was well, that in there the book
1: really addressed Generational different generational approaches to money, education, relationships, success, and all that that's really the focus. But interestingly enough, when I speak on that book, the topic, what I have as soon as I stop speaking is a lineup Uh out the back of the room of dads who are saying, How can I have the relationship with my son that you have with yours? Uh where they're saying my son made different decisions and instead of embracing him mm-hmm. I held him at arm's length and now we have a distant relationship how can I recapture the relationship you obviously have with you
0: so are you got a book in the works on that
1: not on that specifically I should. I mean because when I heard you
0: speak <laughs> I did have that you know when I when I saw you and your son and just like man you know how did that work you know yeah. Because um, I love that because I think that is that is the challenge, you know, as as a dad is giving that freedom and just balancing all that mentally.
1: Well, again, yeah. you're in, being raised in the Amish community and then I have a son who has, you know, tattoos and earrings. <laughs> not, yeah, not exactly embracing the cultural heritage. Right, there. <laughs> right. All
0: right. So talk to me about how important it is to make sure you have a stellar filter to the three senses of sight, hearing and taste. What we let in our body and mind is very important. How should we go about finding that filter?
1: Boy, that's something to be protected. It really is. When I see how casual people are about the things they, you know, you walk in somebody's house and the TV is just blaring with nothing but negative news. I walked into a place recently that was a health-related institution, and I was going to get a treatment on a particular machine there. I was the only one there when I walked in early in the morning. lady met me, and the two big TV screens were on with the news running. I said, how does this fit? You are emphasizing health, wholeness, wellness, positivity, spiritual vitality. How does having those TVs on It destroys the very ambience you're trying to create. She was really kind of mortified. I didn't mean to be critical, but I just pointed that out. It seems so obvious to me, but I really control what I allow in my mind. So I'm reading things that I know are uplifting, listening to things that are uplifting, spending time with people that are uplifting. And that's one of those things about creating boundaries that sometimes people kind of cringe. Well, When I I talk about the negative impact of being around negative people, they're saying, well, what if those are family people or, God forbid, your spouse? Yeah, that's a challenge, but there are family people that I will not spend three weeks with. I'm not going to spend three days with. There are family people where I will agree to spend three hours with them a year, perhaps. Now, I don't want to make, make that sound harsh. You know, mm-hmm. I can love people from a distance, but I'm not going to spend time with people who are so negative, mm-hmm. who are choosing to live in comfortable misery rather than seeing new opportunities moving toward those. I mean, the old Jim Rohn quote is, you know, becoming the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty that's a pretty stark reality if we believe that right. so i want to spend time with people who are performing at the level which i want to perform now is there a time for giving for caring compa- absolutely i don't want to diminish that at all but i'm not going to spend 90% of my time there
0: mhm yeah, yeah yeah i think there's that that i think that grace part sticks in when you're around people that don't have the growth mindset because they are so different and even trying to engage in conversations, it's kind of difficult at times, you know? But yet, you know, it can be family. And absolutely. yet, I think that's, like you said, healthy boundaries of, of knowing, you know, okay, hey, you know, we're going in here, communicating, two days tops. <laughs> we know fours were burnout, you know?
1: You know, there um, are times when people in, when they are going through growth in their own lives, they realize the people closest to them are not cheering them on. I mean if you're working in a job that you detest and everybody else there complains as well and you decide you're going to go out on your own you're going to get into real estate and what are people going to say oh that's great we, no they're going to say are you crazy you're not you're going to walk away from a vested retirement plan you know you're going to go out there with no guarantee you know the real estate cycles you're going to hear all those negative things mm-hmm. what you have to do is get around people who are really killing it in real estate they're going to tell you absolutely you can do it it's like in music I mean we're here in a music town you'll hear people say gee you know you, you can't make it I mean Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber you know or Keith Urban Luke Bryan they're just lucky no mm-hmm. what they're telling you is they weren't able to make it that's all that says you talk to one of those people whose names I just mentioned they're not going to tell you you can't make it they're going to say well absolutely you can do these things and you're gonna see your growth explode.
0: Yeah, and most people aren't willing to do what it takes to make it, right? Yeah. Um, so a podcast guest of do well oh, sorry, let's say that again. A podcast guest of do well and do good noted his definition of an entrepreneur is jumping off a cliff and building the plane on the way down. I know it is easy to pat ourselves on the back as we build something, and sometimes we let pride prevent us from asking for help. What advice would you give to prevent a crash and not feed the ego?
1: Well, sometimes people envision entrepreneurs as being like you described, just jump off a cliff and hope things work out. I find that not to really be true for entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs plan. They're not as risky as you might think. Now, I tend to take action quickly before everything is guaranteed because I want to get in the game, but it's getting in the game that you test things. If I'm working with somebody who wants to be a coach, as an example, I don't want them to spend 2 years in you know, a reading books and listening to podcasts and thinking about it. I want to start coaching today because you become better by actually doing that. Mm-hmm. So most things that we approach in the entrepreneurial realm are like that as well. So when I introduce a new product, be that a book or whatever, I mean you ought to see the early iterations of 48 Days to the Work You Love. It was first a little spiral bound thing that I had done at Kinko's. You know, and then it was a three ring binder with two stick and lick cassette wells in there. I mean, it went through about seven iterations before it became a New York Times best seller as a traditional trade book but um, it's Reed Hoffman from LinkedIn who, who says if you aren't embarrassed by the first version of your product or service right you waited too long yeah and so I don't there's that fine tension between waiting trying to get it perfect. A lot of times the the attempt to make something perfect is just procrastinating with the fear of getting in the game. So I want to get in the game. If I fail, it's not the end of the world. It's just okay. Now I know more, and and really I don't I don't look at failure as even an option. Mm -hmm. There's only two outcomes to trying something. One is either I win. Number two is I learn. Those are the only two outcomes. So I don't fear failure. Thus, I try a lot of things that don't work out beautifully. But you know, every once in a while, I hit one that really works pretty well.
0: Yeah. And it, it, (laughs) you know, all that just adds to your story, right? Absolutely. Um, So Scott Hamilton noted the greatest indicator of success is longevity. And longevity is only achieved by taking small, meaningful... Oh, yeah. We got some... (laughs)
1: We're sitting out here in my property, and there's a whole family of turkeys. There's mom and dad and seven young'uns that are getting pretty big, that are walking past.
0: That would be an example of when I would tie into a squirrel. How do you avoid the squirrels in your life? (laughs) Uh, As entrepreneurs,
1: we notice those squirrels. Maybe a new opportunity there. I'll start a turkey Uh, farm.
0: Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, So Scott Hamilton noted, the greatest indicator of success is longevity. Longevity is only achieved by taking small, meaningful, consistent steps in the same direction. How do you define success?
1: There's a lot to be said for longevity, persistence, and consistency. Now, I told you I'm a change agent. I love change. If it ain't broke, I'm looking for a way to break it because it's going to show up a new opportunity. However, that being said, there are also some things that tie into consistency that have served me very well. In August of 2000, so we're talking... Eighteen years ago, I started my first digital newsletter. I had been doing a physical newsletter. You know, we'd come up with things, and it, it was about a three-week process to get things printed and sent out. I mean, think about how obsolete that is today. So it's old news, where today I can we can have this conversation. I can have something about that in my newsletter tomorrow mm-hmm. that goes out to people. But I started a digital newsletter, got resistance from people who are used to getting the physical newsletter. I said, nah, you know, that's over. I'm going to move into this. But I said, every week I'm going to send out career tips for people. That was eight, eight, over 18 years ago. I've never missed a week, never missed a week. That speaks to people. My podcast, I was on Terrestrial Radio, WTN, here in Nashville for six years, and then discovered this crazy thing called podcasting. I would take segments of my radio show and put them up, Mm -hmm. and I did that the first time in December of 2009. So we're at nine years on that, but I said, I'm going to do a podcast every week. I've never missed a week. So it doesn't matter if we've been out of the country or I've never missed a week. The consistency builds trust. Right. So even though I'm an entrepreneur, it doesn't mean that I'm wiping the slate clean, you know, every year and just starting over and doing something new. No. Building consistency builds trust and trust builds rapport. That leads to permission and people pull out their wallets and do anything that you offer. Right. That's a yeah. pretty predictable path. Right. So I do believe in that. This thing about being an entrepreneur doesn't mean just, you know, follow the squirrels. And every six months, you're doing something new.
0: Right, right. So with the with success, though, and even defining it, like I heard some other day, and they were looking at it from a monetary standpoint, and they were like, "Yeah, I'm just not. You know, I feel like I'm not being very successful." And I thought, you know, maybe you have defined success incorrectly. You know, because I think there is the business aspect, but family and just that whole balance of yeah. you know defining success. You know,
1: well, there there. I think there are seven. Components in a wheel of life. So those include things like you know family, certainly finances, you know career, but also you know social, personal development, spiritual vitality, those things as well. So yeah, you know, financial is just one tool for success. But I define success certainly not original with me, but as the progressive realization of worthwhile goals. Thus, somebody can decide they're going to go to Africa and drill wells for those people and live on $10,000 a year and be totally successful. The Progressive Realization Worthwhile Goals. That also means a sophomore in high school can be successful. So, it's not just tied to when you have a million dollars in the bank, not at mm-hmm. all. That's a very artificial definition of success. As I indicated, you know, I have kids who have chosen their path to success, having very little connection to finances at all. Golly, I embrace that. I'm thrilled with what they're doing. So it's it's yeah, just yeah. One, it's just one tool. We have to be careful about thinking that it's. And the other thing about that too, Andrew, that I see people, they think success is a destination. Success is when I get to this point, and they miss the value and the joy of the journey. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed the journey in those times where I've had the lowest financial success of my life, I still love the journey, the times with my family, my kids, the things we did, relationships that were developed and nurtured during that period of time. Mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't because I had money in the bank, but it was because of that definition of success that allowed me to continue on that path.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's funny, because as I was telling you about selling commercial trucks that year, I probably made the least amount I've made since I've been out of college, but I had the f- funnest time in uh, in my job, which was driving across country, you know, and just being able to experience that. It's like, man, that was awesome. I was never content with the job, but it was like, all right, the doors kept opening. And then that was just an opportunity that presented itself. And I'm like, man, I look back and I love it. And that experience is just got me on my seat, ready to take the boys, you know, across country, you know. So absolutely, it is. It is I think that's those are the moments too that you don't just go. Uh, I started reading Job this morning, and it's like don't just park there and go why, why, why. You know, it's like all right, what can I learn from this? You yeah. Know? So and then sometimes maybe you don't know, but you just keep moving forward.
1: Well, and when you really define things that you know are meaningful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I look at money as a byproduct. It's not something that I approach directly. And I think people really cut themselves off from the most fulfilling things because they often do that. Just as I described being an author, if I look just at the mm-hmm. money, I would never have gone down this path. But because I'm passionate about it, I did it, and then the money showed up later. But we have an online community that I started recently, 48 Days Eagles. It's very low monthly membership fee, but it is a membership fee. But I wanted to, to, to be a place where people can share ideas and resources, and I find that people do that so readily. and the ultimate effect is it lifts everybody's success. I love seeing that. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, we're approaching a thousand people in there and people are paying $36 a month. And I'm thinking, well, golly, this kind of makes sense. So now we're doing some things, even in the remainder of this year, we're going to open that up. And I've made it very clear that I want to get that to 2,500 people. So that's a nice manageable group, but at 2,500 people, $36 $36 a month, yeah, that's a million dollars a year, has mm-hmm. very little overhead, it's just allowing people an umbrella under which they can share and encourage each other, but also, it, it does make sense financially, and right. that's kind of a cool thing, yeah. but that, that comes later. I didn't start that right. with the intention, oh, this is going to be another million dollar mm-hmm. generator.
0: It's even like with this podcast, I'm like, people are like, so how's it going? I'm like, well, I kind of relaunched it for the second time, third time. And I'm not spending the time seeing what the, the posts are, you know, because that's not really what I'm focused on. <clears throat> I enjoy it. And it's just a, really a networking tool as well. Um, now, granted, again, it's not like you you push aside the potential of what could be. But you focus on today and you move forward and, you know, you, you just let what happened happen to some degree. right? Yep. Absolutely. Um, all right. So. You still got time? Yeah. (laughs) So there's a four letter word and it starts with the letter F. Oh. So many people struggle with it. So many people miss out on an awesome experience because they let it control their lives. So many people stay stuck in a job they're unhappy with because Mm -hmm. they cannot push through it. How do you break free from fear or keep it to a minimum?
1: Yeah. Fear, again, is it it implies the unknown. But unless we move into the unknown, our lives are never going to change. If things are predictable and we understand it from top to bottom, then we've just created a box from which there's no escape. So fear, I mean, I don't like to use that word in the the same way I don't like to use the word risk. It implies something negative. Mm -hmm. Do I feel fear if I'm going to... Walk off that cliff, or if I'm going to do, you know, go off the platform on a zip line, or if I'm going to try something new like turning the shower on totally cold and stepping into it. You know, sure. Am I going to feel fear if I launch a new course or if I write a manuscript and turn it into a publisher? Sure. So it's going to be an inherent part of anything we do that's stretching us, even if it's in a very positive growth direction. So I don't. I mean, mm-hmm. we have to get past thinking that fear is a negative thing. It's a very natural part of growth and moving toward new possibility.
0: Right. Yeah, I get that. So, then what would you define people who are stuck in, you know, going forward or wanting to, you know, they hate their job, they want to leave, yeah. but something's holding them back. Um, how would you define that? Like. They they have
1: an unrealistic understanding of what they can move to. When I talk to somebody who's wrapped up in fear or discouragement, frustration, anger, resentment, guilt, all those Mm -hmm. negative emotions, I know they're looking at what has already happened. If we can draw a line in the sand and get a clear sense of what they can move to, all of a sudden we get optimism. Boldness, confidence, mm-hmm. enthusiasm, and all those negative emotions start to dissipate. So it's people who have no sense of what the possibilities are that they can mm-hmm. move to. Yeah. Yeah. They see the current reality as the only thing that's possible, which is never, ever true. Nobody has to go to a job they hate. Now, do you choose to do that today because you want the paycheck on Friday? Yeah, that may be true but you don't have to go there. and The feeling that people are trapped is never true. I work with a lot of dentists, attorneys, engineers, people like that, who by virtue of their academic experience and work experience, feel trapped in what they're Mm -hmm. doing. A lot of them are saying, I don't want to do this anymore. You know what? We have a whole lot of really fun stories about people like that who have taken a new direction. It doesn't mean they need to compromise even where they are financially. A lot of Mm -hmm. times, people think like that, well, how else am I going to make $400,000 a year? Goodness, in today's environment, there's a whole lot of ways to replicate that, that income. And if you're bright, as you obviously are, from having completed all those programs and all that, we can figure out other ways. Mm. Now, is it going to be just polishing your resume and going down the street and getting a job? No. But we can certainly come up with ways where you can do that. And I've got just fabulous stories about people who have broken out of something where they felt trapped, and yet in reality they certainly right. are not.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like it because, like you said, fear is a reality of what people will feel, good or bad, and that's usually not Always the term that holds them in bondage to that position. It's just not opening their eyes to different experiences, you know, or the different emotions. So I like that. That's good. Um, I don't want, you know, I I don't want to
1: eliminate fear from my life. Right. (laughs) Right. I I don't want fear to be absent. If fear is absent, again, I'm coasting, Uh, I'm on cruise control and I'm missing opportunities. Right. No, I don't want fear to be in the driver's seat, but I don't mind if that sucker's in the back seat.
0: Yeah, if I didn't have fear, I'd be doing 90-something miles an hour around a curve in this camper. And I'm like, no, actually, I need to slow it down because yeah. I don't want to lose. Yeah, 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 yeah. I totally agree. All right. So I know you have an awesome family that is living life to its fullest, and you have a wonderful wife of 50 years. Looking back over being a father and a husband, what is a bit of wisdom you would pass along to people starting one of those journeys?
1: Boy, that's a deep question. My goodness. You know, when I look back at the person I was, my wife was 17 when I met her, I was 18. She walked into her first day at The Ohio State University. I was a big sophomore, and I saw her, and I asked her around, I said, does anybody know who that girl is? And what I did is I actually followed her, mm-hmm. and she walked in and put a note up on a bulletin board that said, if there's anybody that lives in this part of town. I would appreciate a ride from my house to school till I figure out something. I looked over his shoulder and I said, well, you know what? I come right by there. I'd be, <laughs> now it was totally not on the way at all. It was totally, I lived out in a farm, all
0: right, all and right. it had
1: nothing to do with my path. I said, I come right by there. I'd be happy to give you a ride for the next couple of days until you find somebody that, you know, you make mm-hmm. it consistent with. That was how we met. And, of course, that path never stopped. I kept right. giving her rides. And, and
0: you're still stalking her to this day, still right? Still <laughs> stalking her to this day.
1: But she was gorgeous then and is gorgeous today. Uh, I we were, we were so ignorant. I mean, this wasn't like we had things figured out, and we understood each other so well, and we predicted this life. I mean, we're so different today. Th- this idea of finding the perfect person is just ludicrous we found each other we were both coming from homes where that were not very positive we hung on to each other we got married our first home was an eight by 42 foot trailer a little bigger than the one we're in here but not much right we lived in that for 40 we thought it was magnificent that was our first sanctuary but we grew together but we very quickly learned that we were dramatically different in personality You know what? We love that about each Mm. other. I don't want a clone of myself, God forbid. So we learned how to embrace the differences in each other and how to find opportunities to help the other person be really successful in what they're doing as well. I don't want her to be dependent on me. I want her to be interdependent, Mm -hmm. where our lives are mingled, but she's a wonderful artist and an art teacher. You know, does things like that. I am thrilled. She just had a recent commission piece. I mean, I'm her biggest fan, as she is mine. She is the first one to compliment me when I give a presentation. She's in the audience. And you know what? She's the only one I care about. Mm -hmm. Her affirmation is more important to me today than anybody. I mean, we could have Warren Buffett sitting in. His Mm. affirmation would not mean as much to me as Joanne Miller. I mean, we have, we been lucky. Yeah. But I've also been just as intentional about my marriage as I have been about a business. So it's not just, well, I hope it works out. No. What am I going to do to make deposits of success in this relationship? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do to make emotional deposits? We've been married for over 50 years. If you watch us come out of our house out here in the country and go to the car, I walk around to her side of the car and open the door. That's just one of those little things, Mm -hmm. an emotional deposit. So I have some emotional salve there when I screw up and make a withdrawal, which I certainly will do. Being a a parent, I approach it in the same way. Mm -hmm. My kids are unique, special, precious, precious individuals. I want to help them discover those unique things God has implanted in them and then help them find success in their own ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, my daughter... We have two sons and a daughter. My daughter, Ashley, works for me. She's never had another job. She's worked for me for 15 years. They're location independent. They live on the road, but she still works for me. I talk to her every single day. There's lots of things we're working on. She heads up all the initiatives in our 48 Days company. But I talk to her multiple times a day. She's a grown woman. She's 38 years old. She has kids of her own. I never end a conversation with her without saying, I love you. She says, I love you too, Daddy. Mm. I mean, I, I, that's really precious to me. Right. That's not just some casual thing that's just try. I mean that. Mm-hmm. And in talking to my daughter who works for me, and never in a conversation. So I've been very intentional about the success I have in other areas of my life. I mean, physically, I mean, people say, how can you be married 50 years? You know, you look like you're not 50 years old. Well, uh, do I not do things? you know we get a massage we have a massage therapist that comes to our house every friday afternoon we do what
0: things. time i'd like to come over <laughs>
1: <laughs> Joanna's at 3 i'm at 4 every friday when we're in town but we do things to intentionally keep us in great shape mm-hmm. so it's not just business that matters like i said that's that's one part of our lives but certainly only one and not even the most important one So I'm just as intentional and as you can tell I love the opportunity of being a a husband and daddy. Right. Uh, more that That's going to have more of a legacy for me. I mean, I've had uh, things that I'm thrilled about that have happened in my business and books that will continue for years. I'm thrilled about that. But the real legacy that I'm proud of is being a husband
0: and daddy. Well, that leads right into the next question. From the great words of Paul and Timothy 4.7, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. When your journey's over, what legacy are you hoping to leave?
1: Wow. I want to be remembered as somebody who is compassionate kind, understanding, uncompromising integrity, relationships that mattered from start to finish. I mean, that's the kind of person I want to be remembered as. You know, are there principles in 48 Days and other things that I've written that I hope people remember? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. But, and there have been things that have happened in my business life that have been comparable to winning a Grammy, which have been real Benchmarks for me. Mm-hmm. At which time I thought, man, if I checked out now, I mean, it's been a good life. So I, I love continuing to have those. But I also love continuing to have those as a daddy and and a husband as well. Those things. There are still things I want to accomplish. As a daddy, Mm -hmm. as a grandpa, as a papa at this point. Uh, My grandkids, I mean, you know, I've got a lot of grandkids. And you ask them, you know, what they want to do when they grow up? I want to work with papa. That's awesome. You you ask them, where do you want to have your birthday party? At Yaya and papa's house. When one of our our oldest grandson, when he turned 13, we always do something really spectacular when they're 13, anything they want to do. So he was really into Legos. And I said, well, there are two Legolands, there's one in Norway. And there's one in san diego they live in he lives in colorado i said you know you want to go to one of those man we can do that you tell us what you want to do well he's real thoughtful so he thought for about two weeks and he finally called us i've decided what i want to do for my 13th birthday i want to come to your place in franklin tennessee
0: wow that, i was sitting there listening i'm like is he gonna say that man yeah
1: of all the places in the world he wanted to come and mm. spend time with us right mm. here at our home I mean, that says a lot it says a lot grand,
0: about the memories you've uh, created here when right. the
1: grandkids would rather come to our property than any place in the world yeah that uh man i i can take that to the bank and you bought him a
0: massive lego set right because that saved <laughs> you a lot of money <laughs> uh, yeah. that's awesome well that's that's cool. Well, Dan, that's all the questions I got. So uh, yeah, we covered a lot of territory. We did. We came prepared. We did. I appreciate did. that. Appreciate your time. And so, tell the audience how they can find um, you online, and then uh, the books that you would uh, have them read. All right. That, well, that you've written, kind of, obviously.
1: The, 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 okay, you want to go live in yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I have books that I value greatly that I think yes. everybody ought to read before they're thirteen years old. But and
0: actually I heard that on a podcast and oh. I want to go back and listen to it because I need to like I want I was telling my boy um about that. So my because he's, he's eleven. Yes. There you go. Actually, I, so what are the what are the ones before? 13? How to win friends
1: and influence people? Dale Carnegie. That's a that's a must. See you at the top by Zig Ziglar, Magic of Thinking Big, David Schwartz, Acres of Diamonds, Russell Conwell. I mean, those are some that are just givens in there for the formative years. Now, okay. however, <laughs> I mean, I I always I have been impacted by books more than any other force. I mean, books have opened opportunities for me like nothing else and continue to do so. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. a voracious reader and continue to be impacted by books. But I'll, thus, the love of writing as well. So people can go to 48days.com. I mean, that's pretty easy to find. So anything 48 days. They can find resources, lots of articles, ideas, ways to share with other people. And then 48DaysEagles.com is our membership community. That's been a place where there's a lot of magic happening, where people are sharing ideas together, helping each other in ways that I could never have anticipated, so I'm really proud of the legacy that's being created there as well.
0: Mm-hmm. OK. And then your books?
1: Forty-eight Days to the Work You Love, mm-hmm. No More Dreaded Mondays, Wisdom Meets Passion, Rudder of the Day, Right to the Bank. What one I'm working on right now, I'm not I'm not selfish, I'm just smart. The power of investing in yourself, I've been speaking some on that, and I'm so excited about the content, I can't wait to get it out there. But there's nothing that I've ever seen that gives a financial return like investing in yourself. Mm-hmm. So, that's coming, that'll be coming in the next six months.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Dan, thanks again for your time.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. What a delight with the uh, questions you laid out here. Help me rethink some of the things I've been privileged to live through. Thanks, Andrew. You're
0: welcome. What a great time I had hanging out with Dan Miller. I drove away from the sanctuary with some new insight and some gained wisdom. After hearing Dan's story and others as well, I am amazed at what one can accomplish in spite of their culture, environment, or upbringing. If you have a great idea, just keep it in front of you as a goal. Just be reminded of what you want to accomplish and also surround yourself around great people that will help push you forward. Next week, tune in. I will be hanging out with Chad Jeffers. We had the pleasure of hanging out in the Rambler in a Toys R Us parking lot in Franklin, Tennessee. Chad has a pretty exciting life. He tours and plays guitar with Carrie Underwood, writes music, speaks, and teaches some at Belmont University. Make sure to tune in next week to hear Chad's story. As far as the sponsors, if you have not picked up on it yet, I'm a realtor in the Nashville area with a focus on residential real estate and real estate investing. I'd be happy to help you with your real estate needs. You can also give Brandon Hutchison a call with the Legacy Mutual Mortgage for all of your lender needs and limestone title and escrow for any title needs. Thanks again for tuning in and look forward to next week. Hold tight for Stephen Day. And thanks again for tuning in to Nashville Untold. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe, share with someone, and leave a review. Make sure to check out the show notes for details on Dan Miller and ways to connect with him. And also, there will be a a link for Stephen Day. And actually, um, I did an interview with Stephen Day last year, so you can uh, check that out. So now, sit back, relax, and listen to Stephen.
2: Rockin' the Camper with Andrew Buckwalter. That's me. Rockin' the Rambler. Uh, the song's called Sour Inside. Well, Mama told me not to mess around And watch out for that candy type They can take your thinking up Though she may look real sweet, that might not be the case A good personality ain't bought with a pretty face She'll pull you in and then pretty soon you'll find She may look like sugar, but she's sour inside hmm. Ooh, Crafted confection on the scene She hides behind that mask of hers That looks to be so sweet She sits there cute-like candy Wrapped up on a shelf The truth of the matter is She's wrapped up in a cell She'll pull you in and then Pretty soon you'll find She may look like sugar but she's sour inside Whoa-oh-oh. Well, I know you're kind And you can't hide it Go ahead and try it. You can't deny it And all of this time I tried to fight it But I've made up my mind Sugar, you're sour She'll be showing all the signs and For a while you'll be blinded But in time you will find Yeah, you'll find that she's Sour inside Well, I know You're kind And you can't hide it Go ahead and try You can't deny it And all of this time I tried to fight it But I've made up my mind Sugar, you're sour inside Sugar, you're sour Oh, sugar, you're sour Mmm, sugar, you're sour Sugar, you're sour She may look like sugar But she's sour
0: We hope you've enjoyed listening to Nashville Untold with Andrew Buckwalter. We encourage you to leave us a rating
1: or review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode to be a guest on the show or to share your thoughts. Send us an email to podcast.com at andrewbuckwalter.com until next time